Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years, and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I was intrigued to learn how company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Yoni from Valence and learn about their story. Yoni, can you please tell me about yourself and what you guys do? Thanks, Yoni, for having me. So my name is Yoni. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Valence. We're a startup focused on SaaS security. We help organizations secure their core SaaS applications by helping them discover and understand their risk surface, whether it's third-party integrations, identity, security, external data sharing, misconfigurations, and to apply automated remediation workflows that collaborate with the business users to contextualize and reduce risks with automated workflows. My personal background, Valence is a second cybersecurity startup I've started. Before I had a startup called the Skate Offense, focused on industrial IoT cybersecurity. I've been in cybersecurity for the past almost 15 years, whether it's from the Israel Intelligence Forces through different startups, and eventually led to me starting Valence less than two years ago. You mentioned SaaS companies. I was doing a presentation about security enterprise browsers a couple of weeks ago, and I was wanting to learn about the stats about SaaS. I didn't know that the SaaS industry is growing every year, and it started from 2015, 6%, 10%, 15%, 18%. So every year, it's growing more and more and more. I think last year, we spent something like $170 billion in SaaS. So it's definitely a very important topic to secure and manage. The company is a relatively new company. I believe you guys started during pandemic. And I'm wondering what was going on through your life that kind of thrown the blight on and say, I want to do this company. I'm not sure I had a, a lot of different options. I knew I'm an entrepreneur and I wanted to start another company. And I was looking for the right opportunity. Doing the startup ideation and co-founder searching during the pandemic is definitely not easy. But I think it's part of the determination you need to have in order to eventually build successful companies. So I think a lot of the ideation Shlomi, my co-founder, myself had that's over Zoom or sometimes without even meeting in person. But you also see the peaks while there was maybe lower points in terms of the pandemic itself, where we were able to accelerate some of our collaboration and our joint work. But I think also referring to what you mentioned in terms of SaaS adoption, it also accelerated a lot of the security challenges that organizations have. And it also opened a lot of opportunities for innovation and new companies. I don't think the browser isolation companies or the enterprise browser category would even exist without the pandemic. Definitely for us as well, since we're focused on SaaS security, the shift towards SaaS and cloud really accelerated a lot of our thought process regarding the problem space and what we should solve. There's obviously not always a lot of benefits for these types of pandemics, but as entrepreneurs, you always need to find 1% of things that help you succeed and double down on that. So I think that's what we mostly focused on. It's interesting. You were pandemic you're using SaaS applications, you found that you want to solve a SaaS security problem. How did you know that people are going to buy the solution? What is the metrics? What's the market validation you did to realize you're going to build this great tool and people are going to actually buy it? I always joke that security companies are like mushrooms after the rain, like we like to say in Hebrew, where basically when there's a large or major breach, you'll see a lot of companies that try to solve the problems that the breach disclosed or showed to the industry. And for us, the SolarWinds attack campaign almost two and a half or three years ago was a major breach that the entire industry was focused on. But when we looked at the different elements that are related to SolarWinds campaign, we realized that again and again, we're trusting third-party vendors one way or another, and there are different issues that are related to our trust with these third-party vendors, whether if it's the SolarWinds itself, 
or a lot of the techniques that the attackers used during the SolarWinds campaign. For example, one of the things they did is they breached into trusted vendors that have high privilege access through third-party integrations. Let's say, for example, through an email integration, which allows the third-party vendor to scan the entire email tenant or the emails within Microsoft 365 and leverage that integration in order to steal sensitive data from trusting customers. And we've realized that when we spoke with customers again, and we talked to them about third-party risk management, nobody really liked how they were doing third-party risk management and nobody really trusted their vendors. We realized that once we started to speak with more and more customers and to uncover more and more of their issues and pain points, we realized that there are a lot of issues that are related to this general problem space of how we collaborate and work with third-party vendors and external vendors that required a new type of approach. And that really what led us to focus on what we looked at at the beginning as a business application mesh or SaaS mesh and this network of trust between our third-party business applications. And eventually this evolved into becoming more and more of a SaaS platform. You mentioned you spoke with customers. During the pandemic, a lot of people say that the sales are declining. It's harder for them to find customers. Why would customers even talk to you? Why would they actually open Zoom, not phone calls, and listen to your idea. Sales were declining, travel was declining, but CISOs had more time on their plate because they couldn't buy tools and they couldn't travel. Speaking with innovative entrepreneurs that don't have a product to sell was a good getaway for a lot of the CISOs that were stuck at home. If you position what you want from these customers in the right way, meaning I'm not selling anything, I didn't even write a single line of code, all I want to do is build a bit of platform for the industry, and I'm asking for 30 or 60 minutes of your time. Most people will agree to do these types of calls because they don't have to give that much, and they have a lot to gain from that because they're speaking about innovation. It's probably the highlight of some people's day because it gets them out of their day-to-day -day work. And eventually, it's really not something that is transactional. For some people, it's a beginning of a partnership. Some of these people that helped us early on then became design partners, then got the product for a very healthy discount, and eventually was, were able to see a platform that has evolved to solve their actual pain points. So there's a lot of benefits for people that are open for that type of early adoption and innovation, and especially for a lot of them, it's fun. This is a very interesting point you bring, because the industry is screaming, we don't want to buy immature vendors. We don't want to be afraid it's going to go away and they're going to raise money and disappear tomorrow with all our data. But on the flip side, you're saying, and it's a very interesting point, if you jump on the train early enough, you may influence the product, you may influence the feature, and you're going to get a good discount as well. It's a definitely interesting point for the CISOs that maybe potentially what brings them to have a call with you in the beginning. And I think it's also something that we're very grateful for because in retrospective, we started with focusing on a very specific problem space. But what our customers helped us understand is that what we're doing is great, but there is so much more that we can do for them without that much more work. And they really guided us through the request. Sometimes they didn't even realize what they're saying. They just said, hey, what about this? This will be great. And just threw ideas up in the air. And for us as entrepreneurs, as product-oriented and customer-obsessed entrepreneurs, we took everything they said, we brought it in, and we just figured problem after problem that we can help them solve. And it helped us build a better platform and help them solve more problems and hopefully to provide a better solution for the industry. If you're listening to the podcast right now and you want to start your own company, don't start anything, don't write anything, go find design partners. What is what you're saying? Go find design partners and go find people that can help you shape what are the problems that you need to solve. Because good companies solve important problems. They don't build products right away. You need to iterate and work with your customers. Because if you build something in a lab and you wait a few months until it sees the first touch point with the market, it's probably too late. You probably could have improved significantly if you would work with customers. 
and they would have told you a lot of stuff that you are right or wrong about based on that immediate feedback. You mentioned something about the mushrooms out of the drain. By the way, in Russian language, there's also such expression as well. <laughs> so I'm not sure it came from Hebrew or from Russian. I just kind of want to pick your brain. If I'm going and finding design partners, what you did, and you mentioned there's a lot of companies doing something similar, would you not be afraid that somebody going to go and steal your idea and go build it faster? Good friends and entrepreneurs told me in the past, if you talk about your idea of somebody and they just listen to you and they're able to build a better product than you, then you shouldn't do that idea. It means that either it's not a right fit for you or it's not differentiated enough or you don't have an important insight into the market. Because I can talk about what we do all the time, but I think that we have an advantage in building it because we have a lot of insight knowledge into how to build the right product and the right engagement points and how to solve the right problems. So I don't see any point in hiding anything about what we do or where we're going with the platform because our advantage is in execution, not in fact that we have some kind of a secret genius idea. Eventually, cybersecurity is a very competitive landscape. You're either the first or the fifth, but it doesn't really matter over time the market converges. And you need to make sure that you continuously are able to maintain the competitive advantage. And it's not through your high-level ideas that you can talk about with customers or problems that you identify. It's more about your execution. And it's more in the little details, I think, or the small details. So you have an idea, you have a team. Are you going raising money or you go starting to build code? What's next? In a cybersecurity market, you can usually raise money, it's enough, with a good idea and a good, strong team. And for us, luckily enough, we were able to partner with the best VC out of Israel that is focused on early stage cybersecurity investments. And once we decided what we wanted to do and what are the problems that we want to solve, we didn't write a single line of code. And we went and raised our seed money from Wild Ventures that led our investment. And with a great group of angel investors and advisors that participated in the round, including security executives from the US, entrepreneurs based out of Israel, and the right mix of advisors that participated as angel investors. We were pretty quickly able to raise our seed funding and to allow us to accelerate the growth of the product and to start building and working with these early adopters. So you raised money, you're building team. How was hiring people during the pandemic? And not just hiring, because hiring, it's easy. Hiring the right people for your team is the problematic part. And the reason I'm asking this, because you may look for people like you or like your partner, or maybe you completely look for people that are diverse, that are different, that want to challenge your ideas, want to make sure you're going to the correct path. What is your approach of hiring people and what kind of people you need? Do you have some kind of a code of ethics, a code of what they need to adapt to? I think uh, you start with building the more the technical hands-on team. And you need to make sure that you have the right combination between people you trust, people that can build actual platform and that have the right skill sets to the different elements within the platform that you need to build and that you have also the right diversity in terms of backgrounds and the seniority right you can't have a team of 10 seniors right there's too much ego in that room you need to have the right diversification between the different class and the different backgrounds that people have so our first initial hires were mostly people that we already knew in the past and that we had a good vetting of their capabilities and their fit for our, for the company and the ability to help us bring something from zero to one and being able to build something that that is non-existent or a vision and bring it into reality. And I think this requires a lot of agility, a lot of creativity, a lot of times doing something that you're not precisely the most proud of, but it works and can allow you to validate and then rebuild it after you have the right validation. There are a lot of stuff that we built 
in three different ways. And just once we saw the right validation, we went and doubled down on one of the three paths. And you need to make sure that you have people that are with you for the long run and people that are basically your founding team or your core team and are able to really help accelerate that discovery phase while building the platform. You mentioned validation. So let's go deeper on the validation part. So you get your basically marching orders from your customers. You know what you're building and probably it worked, it didn't work. Was there a point when you definitely knew, okay, I am building something that people are going to buy because I got a very good response from the customers. The customer told me, oh my God, I didn't even know this exists. Thank you very much. Like, tell me a story about a big win that made you happy inside and you know you're going to go forward with this. Uh, I'll explain two different wins from two different perspectives. One is that uh, we had a very specific vision on something that we wanted to build we had it in all our seed deck, and we knew that we want to have a very significant technology-oriented component in our solution. And when we started working with customers, we realized nobody wants it, nobody needs it. So the win was actually that we didn't develop it at all based on our customers' feedback because it was a huge overhead in terms of technology and complexity and roadmap. But the value and the implementation was either insufficient or too complex to justify that investment. And when we chose to go through other paths, we just work with our customers. And a lot of the stuff I like to do personally when I do a product discovery is try to get down to the why and what the customer is trying to achieve and to see how they would solve it without any technology solution. And when you see people work on their day-to-day, there are so many small things that you can realize that, oh, I can do that automatically, I can do that automatically, I can do that for you, I can do that for you. And you start to build up a picture of the vision for the platform. And I think the biggest win for us is that we really realized a lot of the repetitive tasks that are related to remediation of SaaS security risks that are mostly related to the fact that security teams have no context into what's going on within a SaaS application. For example, if the development team is using GitHub or the sales team is using Salesforce or the HR team is using Worthday, all these different SaaS applications have their own complexity. Mostly security teams are not familiar with the terminology. They're not familiar with what's going on there in the day-to-day tasks. And the most repetitive element that we've seen between our different customers is, I see a problem. I need to go ask somebody why they did it. And we saw it again and again across the board in different problems. And we just automated the entire process. We allowed them to have a very intuitive process that helps them automate the collaboration with their business users. And I think the biggest win for us is when our early adopters turned on that automation switch, because I think the biggest myth you have about security vendors is everybody says they have automatic capabilities, but nobody turns them on. Everybody claims that in marketing, but in reality, nobody turns it on. And for us, in less than six months, our customers turned on automation and started automating tasks, which indicate that we solve a real problem, that they trust us, and that this is the right way to solve it. Because otherwise, they would never allow us to create so much noise in their organization, work with the different business users automatically, and take action, really revoke items within their core SaaS applications with little to no human intervention based on predefined logic that they define, which is for us the biggest win for an early stage company. This is quite amazing. You mentioned about features and customers. What's come first, chicken or the egg? Do you sell the customer what's coming in the future and say, you have it? Or you kind of make a front, no, no, we don't have it, we can do it for you. It depends on the stage. At the beginning, I personally as well did a lot of the stuff that we wanted to do for our customers manually. We told them, yes, we can do it. And we just did it for them. And we did it manually. We saw that there was value and then we built it. It's usually a much more efficient way. It allows you to experiment in more angles and then to decide on what to double down on. Today, since we're already revenue and we're a more mature company and we have a sales team and it's not promising something to customer X, but I have people in the organization that are working with our customers, I don't think we can promise 
everything. So we need to be very straightforward and very honest with our customers on what we promise. And we can't say, oh yes, we have it. And then go back to the engineering team and say, I just promised something. I don't know even if it's going to work. Maybe you can build it. But anything that we promise, we need to make sure that we can deliver and deliver it within a time frame that it makes sense for our customers. So it's either existing, it can exist by the time that you'll be ready to deploy or in our roadmap, but it can be, yes, no problem. And We'll try to figure it out later, but it changes according to the evolution of the company. When you're earlier, you communicate to the customer and tell them, listen, we're an early stage startup. We're immature. I'll do whatever I need to help you solve problems. Sometimes it won't be in the most mature way, but almost everything you'll say, I'll try to see how I can solve, not precisely do whatever you say, but I'll try to see how I can help you solve these challenges because sometimes there's a distance between what the customer asks for and what they're trying to solve. And maybe there are other ways to solve what they're trying to achieve. Let's pivot a bit. You're the CEO you're probably the first salesperson in the company. So you're going to probably be on majority of the sales calls in the beginning. And eventually, as you mentioned, you have a sales team right now. How do you let go? How do you let people sell themselves? Okay, I trust you with my baby. How did this process go? I don't think it's easy. I think it's definitely a challenge for entrepreneurs, at least for me personally, because there are a lot of things that, in my mind, are very well structured, and you need to teach other people to do it, and then you need to make sure that they do it properly. I think in a sales process and building a relationship with a customer, there are different levels and you can do it in a staged approach. You don't need to say, okay, from tomorrow morning, I'm not coming on a sales call. Good luck, salesperson. Go tell me when you hit your quota and where to send the invoices. But you can do it in stages. Okay, maybe I don't take the first call. Maybe I don't build a business relationship with the business champion, but I can maintain the technical relationship or vice versa. I maintain the business relationship, but I don't maintain the technical relationship. And I don't come on this call. I don't come on that call. And you start to do it in stages until you see that there is a repetitive system that is not dependent on you because obviously most of the first sales are really founders-led, but over time, it's important for the maturity of the company, especially now that we've already raised our Series A and we have a lot of money to accelerate our go-to-market efforts. We need to make sure that we're less and less founders-led approaches in sales. Over time, this will just naturally happen because you hire the right people, you work with the right people, and you structure your knowledge in a way that others can manage it. If you can go back two and a half years ago, what do you do different? Maybe recommend yourself, Yoni, I wish I would did X, Y, Z. So I think before I decided to go and move forward with Valence as the what I'm going to dedicate my life to, I think the most important stuff were to choose the right infrastructure, but basically the right setting and setup for building the right company. And I think for me, what was very important is to make sure, first and foremost, your partner and your co-founder you need to make sure that you choose somebody that is a good fit for you, that gets the most out of you, is able to complement you where you need, but also to help you shine and be the best version of yourself, which are two different very important qualities, both on a personal level and also on a professional level. So I think for us, we have a very good partnership in terms of we work very well together. But also, if you look at the Venn diagram of what each one of us wants to do, there's a very little overlap. So we can complete a much wider picture in terms of the ability to build the right company. Partners are also the right investors, whether if it's a wild ventures that partner with us at the seed, our two dozen advisors that joined us in the seed investment that are still working closely with us. And also later on, our Series A investors like M12 from Microsoft, Akamai, Porsche, Alumni Ventures, Mike Fay from Island, speaking about the enterprise browsers and others, and also the rest of the team. Eventually, hiring the right people and building the right people is the most important thing moving forward because if you want to scale and grow, you need to be able, like you mentioned, to let go of some elements within the management of the company 
and this is mostly human to human. You need to make sure that you have the right people in place that enable you to let go and to allow other people to manage some of these processes. So basically, you're saying you will not change anything. You're happy how it went. You're happy where you are. Totally. Okay, well, let's switch gears and talk about what I call the dark side. If you guys still listening, please continue listening. This is where we capture topics where we talk about stuff that didn't really go as in the movies and some kind of failures. So please share bad employees, bad customers, bad meetings, raising money, whatever you can share without definitely mention names and be discreet. I can share one of the dark moments that I had in the previous company just because it's funny. We were in the operational technology space and I remember I met with a plant factory manager and I started to talk to them about their issues with cybersecurity and how people can attack their plants. And their quote was, I haven't seen an attack in the past 40 years. I don't think I'll see a cyber attack in the next 40 years. That's kind of how they view the world. And that's when I realized this is not the ideal space for innovation, but this is kind of lessons learned about maybe more the industry that you choose and where you choose to focus. I think issues that I see in company culture, going back to more to modern times, but when you see misfit in terms of culture with hires is almost the most impactful for the company because we work on a day-to-day basis very closely with people. And I'm specific and vague to avoid disclosing too much, but when you have a mishire within the organization and somebody that's not a good fit, whether it's because he's not willing to be a team player and look at the bigger picture, or they're not willing to collaborate and work with their colleagues and their managers, or they feel that they need to work within the organization, and they try to be more like, let's say, cowboys within a team that needs to work together. I think a good organization and a good company needs to know how to let go of these people or to separate away with them as fast as possible. Now, fortunately, sometimes you make mistakes with hires, and we're not different than probably any other company in the world. Not everybody that we hired were a perfect fit. And sometimes, depending on their seniority, it can really affect the company culture, the atmosphere, success in terms of KPIs. And I think that continuously measuring and working with each one of these individuals and making sure that you understand whether or not it works well and continuously understanding how do you go beyond, do I like this person to, is this person the right person for this company, for this job? Is something that you need to be very genuine with yourself and continuously validate. Otherwise, you may have more toxic cultures within the company. Luckily for us, I think we know how to recover from these stuff, but it's never easy to realize that you need to separate a person within the company. Usually it's not because they're bad people or because you don't like them. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have hired them, but it's just not the right fit, which makes it just more difficult. There are people that I think that we had to separate from that I'd love for them to come to work every day, but just not work for the company. It just wasn't a good fit. And it's never easy because talking about people's life and people to trust you and they most of the times they came because of you to the company. It's what they had within the company. So I think that's that's something that is always challenging for entrepreneurs in general, but I think also specifically for me in our case. Talking about struggling or challenging, we all have problems. We all know the startup is up and down. How do you personally cope with problems when you have a bad day, when you're, like, you're not in the mood? Like, what do you do? How do you get back to yourself? So I usually disconnect from everything. Just stop communicating, go offline physically and mentally. Luckily, I have a very strong household. My wife is probably the best resolution for every problem I have. But I usually just disconnect. I know to identify when I'm in that situation. And I know that I just need to disengage from everything. I need to recoup. Think through what's going on. Maybe it will take me overnight. Maybe it will take me an hour. Maybe it will take me five minutes, depending on the scale of the issue. But I need to regroup with myself, understand how I take control over the situation, and take over the situation. Usually it happens more when it's items that are more dependent on me that I could have done better in certain situations, but sometimes it's just not. For example, 
take what happened with the SVB a few weeks ago, right? So everybody was panicking and wanted to know what's going on with their cash and everything else. But at some point I realized that when the bank is closed and we did what we could have done beforehand and the rest was out of our hands, that it's out of reach. There's nothing I can do. I don't have to feel bad out of it. I'll make it work. I'll make it work like the entire industry. But in other cases where it's the things that are internal, things that are more dependent on me within the company, usually these things hit you harder in terms of your mood and atmosphere, I would say. Awesome. Yoni, thank you very much. I like the story. I like where you're going. I like where you're taking the company. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.